know that we've been considering this theme, come and see. Uh, And it's both an invitation for those who are uh, unsure uh, whether they believe, those who know for a fact they don't believe, but also for those who have been in the faith for a long time. Uh, For we're all called to come and behold Jesus, to know him more and to love him more. So I pray that as we dismiss the children um, for their study, and also we now turn our attention to your word, uh, that you would uh, surprise us, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would speak to us and remind us again of how much uh, you've done for us in your son and what the calling of the Christian life looks like in response that, to that great grace, Lord. So we thank you. Bless our time now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Uh, we'll be reading verses 1 to 8. Um, the past few months, we've been in this series, of course, Come and See. Um, and I hope there's been a few surprises about him. I hope that, um, that we've been able to, to see aspects and parts of Jesus that uh, cause us to, to love him more, that cause us to, to want to walk with him more. Uh, today's topic is the new birth and what that means for us. So it's through this new birth, this born-again experience, that we uh, are able to come and see and enter the kingdom of God. And so I've entitled today's sermon, Come and See the Kingdom. So at this time, would you all rise with me for the reading of God's holy word? Again, we stand as we receive because uh, we want to honor uh, and show our reverence to the Lord as he speaks to us in his scriptures. So John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, please hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. In his book, uh, What Jesus Demands of the World, John Piper sets out to list 50 things that Jesus demands and commands of us that are found in the scriptures. These are things that Jesus has explicitly taught belong in the life of every Christian. And interestingly, the very first demand Jesus makes is this, you must be born again. You must be born again. Now, why does he begin here? And the answer is this, without the new birth, without being born again, the Christian life is not even possible. So what does it mean to be born again? What does it really mean? And I think it's so assumed in our church. It's so much a part of our Christian lingo, our Christianese, that people utter the phrase being born again or the new birth without a clue as to what it really means and its significance. 
If you've ever seen the movie The Princess Bride, uh, one of the characters, Vizzini, uh, continually exclaims, uh, inconceivable, if you remember the scene, inconceivable at every surprising turn of events. And on one of these occasions, he says, inconceivable. And the famed Inigo Montoya looks at him and simply says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. What does it mean to be born again? Does it mean what we think it means? Now, in general, the term or expression born-again Christian has been too commonly uh, misunderstood and misapplied. So much so, I actually think it's been a disservice to the church that people flippantly claim that they are born again and they apply it to themselves. Now, have you ever heard that expression, born-again Christian? Have you ever heard somebody claim they are a born-again Christian? Well, in fact, first of all, the first thing I'd like to point out is how repetitive that expression is. It actually reveals the very ignorance of what it means to be born again. Because to be born again means you are a Christian. To be a Christian means you are born again. So to say that you are a born again Christian is like saying, hey, for dinner, let's let's go get KFC chicken. You want to get Kentucky Fried Chicken chicken? (laughs) You see, born again... If you are born again, you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are born again. We must understand that born again is another way of saying that you have new life in Jesus Christ. And yet many people claim to be born again when they are not. And this has been hurtful to the church because... The world then looks at somebody who claims to be born again. They look at their lifestyle, their behavior, their belief, and they think, well, if that's what it means to be born again, if that's what it means to be a Christian, then I want nothing to do with it. They'll look at somebody who claims to be a born again uh, believer, and they'll say, they're born again? That hypocritical person, that judgmental person, that hateful person? Oh, I'm so turned off by Christianity. Now, sometimes, if I'm honest with you, I just wish we could abandon that term. I just wish we could come up with a a new term and have a new designation for Christians. But the reality is we can't. And we can't because being born again or the new birth is the very precious and profound way that Jesus reveals to us this essential aspect of the Christian life. To abandon the term, to give up on saying that we are born again is to lose the rich reality of how God wants us to think about and understand the gospel and the work of the Spirit in our lives. So what's at stake here? Why is this so important? Well, in verse 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What's at stake in understanding the new birth? Seeing and entering the kingdom of God. What's at stake? Eternal life in God's kingdom. So it's very important, and we, are at, we have quite a, a task ahead of us. Now, today's invitation is clear. Come and see the kingdom. But how does that happen? So we'll consider this by digging into our passage, and I want to pose and then answer three questions today. The first is this. How can't you see the kingdom? How can you enter the kingdom? And then how do you know you're in the kingdom? So let's start here. Our very first point, how can't you see the kingdom? Our story begins when Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and he doesn't ask a question so much as he makes a statement. So look with me at verse 2. He says, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no, one, uh, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So he makes a statement, and then Jesus' response to that seems a little out of place or a little inappropriate, because Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you really think about that, how, how is that a proper response to Nicodemus' statement? Nicodemus asks a que- and makes a statement. Jesus answers as if Nicodemus asked a question. But Jesus is simply getting to the point that Nicodemus is really trying to ask. The question that he really wants to ask but is slowly edging his way toward. Parents, you're familiar with this. It's like when your teenage child comes to you and says, you know, Mom, did you do something in your hair? You, you look really nice today. And you respond, Okay, you can use the car, but you have to be home by 11. What are you doing? You see right through them. You know what they're really trying to ask. Jesus sees right through Nicodemus. Nicodemus is coming on behalf of these other religious leaders. Most likely, within the Sanhedrin, which is a group uh, that uh, Nicodemus was a part of, there was a small uh, band of, of Jewish teachers who probably resonated with some of the things Jesus was saying. They were curious about him. So they sent uh, Nicodemus as a representative. So it's kind of like little schoolboys. They're nudging Nicodemus like, you go talk to him. You go ask him. And so Nicodemus comes, and we know that because he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Who's the we? The group of people who who you are representing. So he's trying to butter up Jesus. Jesus, this is what we know about you. And Jesus sees right through it, and he answers. He says, okay, I, I know. Okay, okay, okay. Let, let, let's just cut through it. I know what you're trying to ask. And the answer is, you must be born again. Your question is, how can we go into the kingdom of God? How can we enter the kingdom? Teach us what we need to do to get into the kingdom. Jesus says, okay, okay. You must be born again. You must experience the new birth. Now, This is so shocking and surprising to Nicodemus. Uh, When we get to verse 4, this is what Nicodemus responds. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Right? Now, just imagine that. How How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, that's a graphic image. Actually, I have a picture of it. I'm just kidding. I don't. (laughs) But... You can sort of imagine that. And a lot of people have commented, oh, Nicodemus, he's a little slow. But, but no, I think Nicodemus asked this because he's so shocked and he's surprised at his answer. He's actually, he's trying to understand Jesus' response because it wasn't what he was expecting to hear. What was Nicodemus expecting to hear from Jesus? Most likely, Nicodemus coming on behalf of these Jewish leaders, these Pharisees, was expecting to be affirmed that what they were doing was on, they, meant they were on the right track. Nicodemus probably came ready for Jesus to say, actually, what you're doing is great. Keep at it. You're a prime candidate for the kingdom. Why? Because Nicodemus is a somebody in society, in this society. But when Jesus says, you must enter the kingdom, just like everybody else, he's lumping Nicodemus with all the nobodies. And that's absolutely disjarring and disorienting for Nicodemus because he's never been talked to that way. It's like, imagine you're a star athlete in high school. You're the smartest person in your class. You're the, you're the prettiest person in your grade. And then you go to college. 
And you're treated just as average because you realize that you no longer stand out athletically. You no longer stand out academically. You no longer stand out aesthetically. And so you don't know how to handle that. You don't know how to be considered just like everybody else because your whole life you've been ahead of everybody. And then you go to college and you're having this identity crisis. Nicodemus and the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they are at the, hot, they are at the top of society. And so when he comes and he says, Jesus, tell us how to get into the kingdom, he's really expecting Jesus to say, well, okay, you guys are doing a great job. All right, just keep at it. But Jesus instead says, okay, I know you think you're somebody in society, but when it comes to the kingdom, you're not in a separate class. You're not in the express line. You're just like everybody else. You see, if anybody could get into the kingdom of God by works or by merit or by morality or by good behavior or status or knowledge, Nicodemus would be first in line. In fact, I think John, the author, wants to make that very clear to us. And so if you actually go back to verse 1, and you kind of look through it, there are all of these details that John gives. So it says, now there was a man. Now, why is that important? Because Nicodemus already is in a more advantageous uh, position than half of the society, right? Especially one that looked down upon children and women. He was already in the, in, in the, in the, um, the half that, that has already won, so to speak. So, okay, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now, being a Pharisee meant he was morally upright. Uh, he was fastidious in his observance to the law. More than any other Jew, he was committed to keeping uh, the biblical commandments, even the ones that they made up. They made up all these commandments and they kept it to a T. Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, probably tied to even the spices in his kitchen. That's how obedient he was. Then it says, a ruler of the Jews... And this identifies Nicodemus as part of the Sanhedrin, which was a tribunal that ruled and looked over all the Jews in a given region. So as a ruler of the Jews, he had status and wealth and notoriety. He was a man of position and prestige and power. And then in verse 4, he, he says this question, how can a man be born when he is old? Why does he ask that? Because it reveals Nicodemus wasn't a young man. He was elderly. And in that society, he had respect. He was considered wise. He was listened to. He was sought after. And then lastly, we didn't read this part, but in verse 10, Jesus says, you call yourself a teacher of Israel? Meaning that Nicodemus is educated, not just generally, but, but he's a scholar among scholars. He was intelligent. He was a specialist. And my point in bringing all this up is to, is to, make, is to say this. Despite being so overly qualified by virtue of his gender, his religious affiliation, his status, his age, and his intellect, being the most eligible man that you could imagine could enter God's kingdom, Jesus still says to a man like this, that unless you are born again, he doesn't just say you can't enter. He says you can't even see the kingdom. And that would have come as an incredible shock, not just to Nicodemus, but it should come as a shock to each one of us because it speaks volumes to even us in the 21st century. Right? Think about it. Trace out what this means. What this means for us. That means this. Even you, when you come to Jesus, everything that you stand on, everything you base your identity on, everything that you think makes you a somebody out there, Everything about you that gives you a name, that earns you respect, 
that solicits admiration from people. Everything about what's out there, Jesus sweeps it all away. Sweeps it away so that you have nothing to stand on when you come to him. This means your spiritual resume, your moral resume, your social resume, your work resume, all these things that you think give you an edge in the kingdom, he tears it up. He tears it up. And that, and that offends us. It challenges us. It confronts us. Here's why. Because when you think about this, if I were to ask you, who needs to be born again? Who needs the new birth? What kind of person do you envision? Now create that profile in your head. Right? Who needs to be born again? Who needs religion? Who most needs God's grace? Who most needs the gospel? Who most needs Jesus? Before we catch ourselves, do we not imagine a certain type of person with certain behaviors and a certain lifestyle that we look down upon? Isn't that how we, how we would answer that? What, what does that person look like? I did that exercise. I was thinking to myself, okay, who needs it? And I began painting a picture. And what does that person look like? And see if your picture matches with mine, right? Does that person smoke? Do they drink? Do they curse? Do they gamble? Do they sleep around? Do they do drugs? Right, something in us, before we catch ourselves, assumes, it's almost default, that it's the bad people who need the most help getting into the kingdom of God. But the shocking thing about our story is here comes a good guy like Nicodemus. Actually, the best kind of guy you could ever meet. And Jesus, without hesitating without stumbling over his words, without pausing to think about how he can say it correctly and gently, Jesus is no problem looking at him straight in the eyes and saying to him, you must be born again. Yes, Nicodemus, you, with all of your status and all of your religion and all of your obedience, you must be born again. You cannot see the kingdom on your own, let alone enter it by how good you are. You see, the new birth is not a call to be better or to improve. The new birth is not a call to more morality and more religion. In fact, if anything, the new birth does something unexpected. The new birth challenges those things. The new birth is a challenge to your attempts to be better and to self-improve. The new birth challenges your notion that if you just shed off some bad habits, if you could just reform and change some social behavior, if you could just bridle your tongue, if you could just be a little bit more religious, then you could see the kingdom. If you just did a little bit more work, you just looked a little bit better, if your speech was still a little bit more cleaner, then you could see the kingdom. And the new birth totally challenges that. So Nicodemus stands as a great example why nothing natural, nothing within ourselves, nothing about ourselves could ever be what gives us access into God's kingdom. Everything that Nicodemus had, everything that we wish we would have, is a currency that has no place in the kingdom of God. Maybe parents, this, this is happening in your children's school, maybe youth group students, this is what 
um, you went through. But I, I remember when I, when I was in elementary school, uh, the teacher um, had this sticker system. Um, basically, uh, and I remember this, the teacher put a poster uh, kind of in, in the back uh, of the wall of the classroom. And you would earn stickers for any number of things. Like if you read a certain number of books, you would get stickers. Or, you know, if you uh, brought in school supplies, they would give you stickers. Or when there's a canned food drive and you brought in a certain amount of cans, they would give you stickers. Or when you had to, I don't know if they do it back then, but they would uh, ask us to bring in uh, aluminum cans. Like, and you would uh, you get points for how many soda cans you bring in for this recycling program, and you would get all of these uh, stickers. And then once you reach a certain amount of stickers, you could exchange it for a prize. You would either get a piece of candy or a chocolate bar, or uh, the best thing was you would get this pass to say you could skip one day of homework. Now, just imagine you collected those stickers. You worked really hard. You did a lot. You got those stickers. And then you went to the local Wawa. You grabbed the candy bar. And you go up to the, cash, uh, the cashier. And you tried to pay for that candy bar with those diligently earned and well-deserved stickers. And imagine this scenario. You go up. You put it, your stickers down. And they say, excuse me, I'm sorry, but we don't accept that here. And what would you say? No, no, no. You don't understand. These are a lot of stickers. I'm kind of a somebody in my classroom. Well, that's great to hear, friend, but those stickers mean nothing here. Fine. I didn't want to have to do this, but you forced me. Here are a hundred more stickers. How many stickers would it take to walk away with that candy bar? How many stickers? The answer, of course, is none. You see, whether you have one sticker or 100,000 stickers, unless you have money, you cannot get the candy bar. My question to you is, how much religion does it take to get into the kingdom of God? How much religious involvement, how much religious adherence, how much religious interest, how much religious association will it take to get into the kingdom of God? And the answer, friends, is none. None at all. Whether you are as irreligious as the Samaritan woman at the well who had five husbands and the one she was with was not her husband, or you are as religious as Nicodemus of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews and a teacher of Israel, unless you are born again, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. How can't you see the kingdom? Nothing you bring to the table. But Jesus is not... um, Christianity is not Gnostic. Jesus is not teaching some kind of secret or hidden knowledge that you must discover and attain. He's graciously forward and clear. And so this is our second question. Well, how can you enter the kingdom? So Jesus says in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he elaborates a little bit more in verses 5 and 6 when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, so when Jesus says you must be born again, another way to translate born again is born from above. So Jesus, when he says that you must be born again or you must be born from above, is attributing a supernatural, heavenly, and spiritual dimension that we must be aware of. So how do you get into the kingdom? Well, you need to be born spiritually. From above. And then he says this little detail. He says, you must, you must be born of water and the Spirit. 
Now, let me make this very clear here. Being born of water and of spirit is not a reference to baptism. Jesus is not saying you must be baptized to experience the new birth. Because, listen, this is very clear, because baptism is merely external. The whole point that Jesus is making here in contrasting flesh to the spirit, external to the internal, the physical to the spiritual, is to say that it's not about the externals, but about what's happening internally within you. So what is Jesus talking about? Why does he say water and spirit? Well, he's referring to a passage in Ezekiel 36, a very famous passage. Now, for us, when we hear being born of water and spirit, we go, well, that's not an obvious connection to us. But it was to this teacher of Israel. It was to this ruler of the Jews. It was to this Pharisee. He would have clearly known. This expert of God's word would have known what Jesus was referring to. So let's go to Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. This is what it says here. Now, notice the language of water and and newness in the spirit. I will sprinkle... That's why I'm Presbyterian. I will sprinkle. (laughs) Not dunk. I'm sorry. That was a joke. Uh, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and calls you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He will sprinkle us with water to give us a new heart, a heart of flesh. He will put his spirit on us. Do we see the references? God is saying, in this new birth that I'm talking about, being born of water, being born of spirit, means that I'm going to put something new in you. I'm going to make you new. I'm not going to make you better. I'm going to make you new. Not refurbished, new. This only happens as the Spirit of God changes us from the inside out, not from the outside in. So I love the way that Jesus challenges Nicodemus. Jesus is essentially saying this. He's saying, you think that you can come to me and you think that you have an in with me because you're already made. Jesus is saying, you think that you can impress me because you're self-made. But I don't require you to be self-made. I require you to be remade, made anew. Made new entirely by the Spirit who will change your heart and your affections and your desires. And this only happens by the grace of God through the spiritual birth from above. This, This is why it's so genius that Jesus chooses to use the new birth imagery to describe the work of regeneration by the Spirit. Jesus could have used any, any metaphor that he wanted to. But, this, but he used this one, and, and it's genius for, for, for this reason. It really shows the grace of God working in us. Consider it. Let me explain. Like, no matter how successful somebody is in life, and no matter how much uh, respect they rightly deserve, um, no biography on a person will ever have a chapter on what they did to prepare for their birth. An interviewer who's writing a biography will never ask a person, no, no matter how important they are, no matter how significant they are, no matter what they've contributed that changed the world forever, no interviewer will ever ask, could you tell me more about that day when you were born? And what did you do to contribute to your successful birth? 
What was going on in your mind? How did you, how did you prepare yourself for that big event? And even if they were asked that question, what more could a person say than, I had nothing to do with it. It was all my mom. It was all my mother. It was her labor. I did nothing. That's the genius of this metaphor here. How will you enter the kingdom being born again? How were you born again? It's all God. I had nothing to do with it. It's a supernatural work by God through his Holy Spirit. There's no other way around it. There is no such thing as spiritual evolution by which you can go from flesh to being born again. No such thing. The only way is through the supernatural intervention of God by the Spirit. It's a miracle. It's an utter miracle. Now, this is an aside, but something I can rant on, but, but let me just say this. That means if you being born again and becoming a Christian is a supernatural, intervening work, monergistic work, only by God the Holy Spirit, then that means not, not, nobody in here has a boring testimony. If salvation comes by God through the Spirit then nobody here has a boring testimony because it means that you were dead in sin and then made alive in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. I think a lot of us growing up in the church, you know, we grew up as church kids. We grew up around this morality. And, and, so, and so I need to tell you, you, you don't need to have been a drug dealer and a murderer to have a miraculous testimony. You don't need to have been a persecutor of Christianity like Saul to have a miraculous testimony. You don't need to have lived like the prodigal son and run away from God and then came back to him to have a miraculous testimony. You know what the only prerequisite for you to have a miraculous testimony is? For you to be who you were naturally and normally of the flesh of sin and corruption, unable to see God and wanting nothing to do with him until the Spirit came into your life and made you new. Therefore, every life given to Christ, every soul entrusting itself to the Savior is a result of a miracle. The supernatural rebirth that you had nothing to do with and that God alone takes credit for. How can you see and enter the kingdom? You are born again. You must become a new person, not a better person. I once heard a pastor uh, give this illustration. He challenged the congregation. He said, imagine back to when you were in college and you were dating and that whole, you know, um, maybe some of you don't want to remember it, but, but just, just go back and, and, and remember it. And he said, he, he says this, he goes, remember when you were so poor and you couldn't afford anything nice and you were too broke to go anywhere fancy? And he says, you know, after that first meeting, after that first date, right, the next day you, you call, you call your date. Right? You don't text because there weren't texts back then. You, you called, right? you did this. <laughs> you called and, and, and you ask what? So what, what did you think? Did you have a good time? And, and when you ask those questions, you're really going like, what are my chances? <laughs> like, is there going to be a second date? And he says, imagine, he says, it's one thing for your date to respond, well, you know, 
can I be honest? And you're like, of course. And I'm not a really big fan of Indian food, so maybe we can avoid that next time. I, I, the movie was good, but you know, I just feel like I, we didn't get to talk much because we were just in that theater. So, so, so maybe next time we, we could do something you know, where we can talk. Now, that's one thing. That's a good kind of answer. It's another totally different thing if they said, well, the food was great. That restaurant, oh my gosh. The movie, oh, that's going to win an Oscar. And you go, well, what, is, is there an issue? And the person says, well, frankly, I just can't stand your face. <laughs> like, y- y- your voice irritates me. And I didn't think it was... I didn't think anyone could annoy me by the way they, they breathe, but, but you've proved me wrong. Now, what is that person saying? So if you go, is there a chance that person's saying, sure, there's a chance. Of course there's a chance. You just need to be somebody else. You just need to be a new person. In the same way, sure, we have a chance to enter into the kingdom of God. Of course you can enter it. All that's required is that you be a new person. How could that ever happen? You must be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel says you can come and see the kingdom. You can enter it, but you must be born again. You must be born from above. Why? Because, friends, again, I'm going to say this again and again, you don't need reformation in your life. You need regeneration. You don't need to be better. You need to be new. Because reformation happens by your own strength and your own power, but regeneration happens by the supernatural work of God through his spirit. The new birth requires that we look away from ourselves and to the efforts of another. The new birth doesn't allow us to boast in our own good deeds. In the same way, you were born through whose effort? You were born through your mother's labor, your mother's Pain, your mother's work, your mother's burden, your mother's suffering. So too then you are spiritually born through another's labor, another's pain, another's work, another's burden, and another's suffering. Who is this other person who would willingly go through all of that for you and for me? Only Jesus. Only Jesus would endure great anguish for our new birth. Only Jesus would suffer physical pain so that we could have new life. Only Jesus would labor through sweat, blood, and tears so that we could receive this new spiritual birth, be made clean, washed of our sins, and given a new heart. Only Jesus would give his life away so that you could have a new life. You see, Jesus doesn't just come to us as a teacher and a lawgiver. See, that's what Nicodemus had wrong. Rabbi, I know you are a teacher from God. And Jesus says, listen, I'm not just going to teach you how to see and enter the kingdom. I'm the one who's going to bring you in. And he did this by dying on the cross. You see, in John 19, as John describes the crucifixion scene, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and this is what it says. He says, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus died and gave up his spirit so that we can be born again through his spirit. Friends, this is how you can enter 
the kingdom. It's only through Jesus who gives us new life by his spirit, the one who labors for us, endures pain for us. This leads to our third question. Well, how do you know you're in the kingdom? How do you know you are born again? Jesus concludes in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying this. There are certain results that manifest themselves if you are born again and belong to the kingdom. Just as you can't see the wind, but you can hear its sound, so we can't see the Spirit, but we'll be able to see the evidence of His power at work in a person's life. We see this in Nicodemus' life. Now, this is really interesting. Nicodemus is mentioned three times in the Gospel of John. The first is this in John 3, our our very text, right? There's a man uh, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He comes by night. So he's afraid. He's a little ashamed. He He doesn't want to be associated with Jesus. He doesn't want the pressures of that. Well, the second time he's mentioned is John chapter 7. This is Jesus' second year of ministry. So one year later, and Jesus, uh, he continues to offend and upset the Pharisees and the chief priests. So they secretly, they try to arrest him. And in John 7, Nicodemus appears briefly, but he stands up to the Pharisees. He defends Jesus. They're secretly trying to arrest him. And he says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So they're all up in arms. Let's arrest Jesus and Nicodemus who came by night and was afraid before. Now goes, guys, is that, is that okay? Isn't that illegal? Shouldn't we give him a just trial? And the third and last time that Nicodemus is mentioned is in the third year of Jesus' ministry. In John 19, Jesus has just died And Nicodemus appears one time, but this time he is different and he is new. He comes with Pilate. He comes to Pilate with Joseph of Arimathea to collect his body. He doesn't care who sees him. And John describes it in this way. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus. And what we see in in Nicodemus' life is this evolution And it's interesting that John would actually take the time to mention, oh, by the way, remember, he's the one who had come to Jesus by night. Why does he do that? To say, look at the stark contrast. He came by night. Now he's coming publicly to collect the body of Jesus. Now he has no shame. It's as if John is reminding his disciples and his readers, remember what Jesus said about seeing the effects of the wind? It took three years for Nicodemus to get here. It took three years, but we begin to see it. See, what change do we see in Nicodemus' life as a result of finally being born again? We see increasing boldness for Jesus and increasing devotion to Jesus. The presence of the Spirit in your life leads to a change by the Spirit in your life. So let me ask you, how do you know you're in the kingdom What is the evidence that the Spirit is at work having brought about new birth in your life? Has God changed your appetites? Has God rearranged your affections? Has God recommitted and changed your allegiances? 
What change do you see in your life as a result of being born again? There's many. I just want to highlight one. One direct fruit is evidenced through the production of humility. You see, because this, we're in John 3. Just a few verses later in John 3, John the Baptist is going to say an astonishing statement that every Christian would, be, would do well to seal it on their hearts. If my kid ever asks, Dad, can I get a tattoo? I'm going to say, no way! Unless it's this. In John 3.30, he exclaims, John the Baptist exclaims, He must increase, but I must decrease. What could better characterize the life of somebody born again by the Spirit? A life truly marked by the Spirit's regenerating work recognizes this central fact. I have contributed nothing, and he has done everything. Therefore, I must not seek to increase as he increases. I must not ask him to decrease so I can increase, but I must decrease and he must increase. It's a life that says, I'm willing, I am content in being a footstool that Jesus steps on so that he is more clearly known, so that he is more adored and worshipped and loved. Friends, how do you know you're in the kingdom? What effect proves the presence and work of the invisible spirit at work in your life? Increasing humility, decreasing self. And so John 1.12 says, You were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, because it is all his work. Now, let me close with this. Well, what does this mean if you're not a Christian or you are not a believer? If it's all God, then am I saying, well, uh, well, good luck. You just, good luck to you. You just got to really hope and wish the Spirit chooses you. No, not at all. If you are not yet a believer, look at Nicodemus. Did Nicodemus sit around and just wish and hope? No, he was investigating. He was seeking. He was questioning. Nicodemus approaches Jesus. He comes to Jesus. He searches out Jesus. And so even if you're here, it's not merely about sitting and and wishing and hoping maybe someday God will open my eyes. If you're here today, it's because it's not an accident. If you're searching and you're curious, that means God is at work. You may not have the benefit of being able to search out a physical Jesus like Nicodemus, but you have a better benefit of knowing him through his word. So I encourage you to read it. So we have Bibles back there in the Welcome Center for free. We have all these different tracks out there. You're welcome to take a look. Grab as many as grabs your interest. Friends, for for all of us here, Jesus' first demand is to be born again. What is impossible for us is possible by the work of the Spirit through Christ. This is a wonderful invitation. Jesus is saying, come and see the kingdom. It would be wise of us to then seek him and his kingdom. Pray with me.
Father, I thank you for your word and how it doesn't hold back its, its punches. It, through, through this story, man, we're just, Lord, we're reminded that what you require of us is not just more and better, but it's something new. And when we couldn't produce it, when we couldn't birth ourselves, when we couldn't be made anew through the Spirit, Jesus, you came down and you did the work and you labored. You labored to the point of death so that as you gave up your Spirit, he would come into our hearts, change us, and make us new. And now we get to see you and enter your kingdom. I pray, God, that that would fill our hearts with much joy and thanksgiving and humility. That we would live, as John the Baptist exclaimed, with our life's motto and theme and commitment being, you must increase, we must decrease. God, produce that in us by the work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Get the privilege, the triune God who saves us is the triune God who blesses us. So now receive God's benediction. May the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love of God, the Father Almighty, and the fellowship and the power of the regenerating Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen. Hear the dismissal from 3 John 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Not only having been born of God, but having seen him and entered his kingdom, let us go and be of every good for his glory. Go in peace.